God's people in politics. That's where we're headed this morning. Uh, I, I just encourage you that there's, there's two ditches when we start talking about politics. There's two sides of the road to this thing. And one side is that just isolationist that many Christians have adopted that says this. Well, I just believe Jesus is coming back. The rapture's coming soon. He's going to clean up this mess. This thing's going to burn. And this is going to set up his rule and reign. And I can just hardly wait for that. And so up until now, I, I, you know, up until then, I'm going to pray. But I, I don't know. I don't really think this culture is going to change. I think it's going to just go from bad to worse. And so almost that defeatist attitude is, why should I get involved? Why, why should I connect? The other side of the spectrum is that you get so politically charged that your hope for answers, your hope for change is in elected office. You, you, you're fervent, fervent about the issues. You're fervent about the issues, believing and thinking that if we can just get the right political people in place, everything's going to change. Everything's going to get better. And that's the other ditch that we can get into that I've watched some Christians kind of follow that path. How many are familiar with the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis? Anybody ever read there? It's really some allegories about spiritual warfare and how the enemy works. And in one of uh, C.S. Lewis's little chapters here, he's talking about even how political influence can kind of get people off track. And this is what he said. So screw tape, he's the, he's the demon trainer, and he's training his little minion here, Wormwood, about the religious impulses that can subvert people, uh, even of people of faith. And so he says this, say this to your victim, let him begin by treating patriotism or pacifism as part of his religion, and let him, under the influence of a partisan spirit, come to regard it as the most important part. Then quietly and gradually nurse him onto the stage of which the religious religion becomes merely part of the cause. And once you've made more of the world cause that end, and faith just a means to get there, you've almost won your man, provided that meetings and pamphlets and policies and movements and causes and crusades matter more to him than prayer and sacraments and charity. He's ours. And the more religious on those terms, the more securely ours. And I can show you plenty, a plenty large cage full down here. So his warning is that sometimes the politics can put us in a partisan spirit by which we move away from just believing that we're supposed to show the love of God in the kingdom of God and reveal that and, and more into a political uh, angst that starts growing in our hearts where we're mad at the other people, we're mad at the other party, we're finger pointing, we join in with the choir from whatever news service you watch and, and, and become fervent in, in that perspective to the point where you know, you're mad at your brother and sister in the Lord. And you're angry with your brother or sister in the Lord. And I would just contend with this. That's a ditch the church doesn't want to be in. Amen? Anybody with me on that? So, so let's look at a little bit. And this is kind of what's spurred it on. And I think it would be great for the UFC to hire both of them and just see what happens after the election. But, but you know, this, this bantering that's gone on for, for months now has really polarized people. And I've talked to many Christians that say they're not going to vote. They're just frustrated with the whole thing, and they're not going to vote. Several of them said, you know, it doesn't matter which one's in. You're, you're really trying to elect the lesser of two evils. And they go down a path where they're just frustrated. And to be honest with you, it's, it's pretty frustrating over the last few months to listen, is it not? 
And uh, this one gal, Susie Painter, she's the executive coordinator of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. She argues that Christians are called to engage in politics even when it's messy. She says the way to combat disillusionment is engagement. Sometimes we think we're disillusioned, we're going to walk away, but what if Jesus had that same attitude about us? Engagement isn't necessarily always the most desirable thing, but I think it's what we're called to do. She goes on to say, uh, voting is not just about who will become the next president. Along with electing leaders who will represent the country, Americans also choose leaders in their states and their counties and their cities. God cares about every level of leadership, she says, so voters should pause and prayerfully consider each candidate. How I vote when I'm considering my city may be different than how I vote when I'm considering my state or the whole world, she says. How does my life intersect? How does my faith intersect in my city? What are the ministries in my church that are affected in my city? What's my primary calling at this moment in my city? I might not vote different candidates when those questions are in mind. So we got us think, if we're just fed up with the big picture, how about the other pictures? How about the local pictures? How about some of the propositions that are on the ballot that can impact and direct what life's going to look like two years from now, five years from now? And I know many of us, we just get in a mindset, it's so complicated, it's so tense, it's so combative that we just step back and not think that our vote or our, our, our mindset or our input's going to matter. And I would challenge us at the body of Christ that it does matter. And we're called to make a stand. We're called to do something about it, to be informed and to be engaged and to exercise our God-given right to vote. Amen? Religious conservatives and religious progressives disagree about the degree to which social problems stem from the individual actions and decisions. More than 8 in 10, that's 82% of religious conservatives agree that if enough people had a personal relationship with God, social problems would take care of themselves. In other words, this is an appeal, instead of some of us just going and sliding over to the side that says we're expecting Washington to fix it, that we say, no, the issue has been maybe in our, our lack of personal evangelism. Our lack of helping turn hearts, change hearts, our, our lack of displaying the love of God and the mercy of God, and the kindness of God, where somebody's hearts change, when somebody's hearts change, even their views and their values begin to shift. And so now we made it more about a political war than sometimes a spiritual war. They were not wrestling against flesh and blood, but there's powers and principalities trying to shift our culture, using tools and instruments and people themselves. But for you and me, just to back up, engage, throw up our hands, say, come back, Jesus, come back. Maranatha, where are you? That's not what we should be doing in this season. Anybody with me this morning? And so the idea of us changing hearts and making a difference there is huge. Now, here's a list of some men and women that were engaged in battle. They didn't take a pacifist view. Scripture says here, read it with me, 1 Peter 2, 9, come on. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And there's just a, a small list of men and women in the Bible that didn't take just the pacifist view of government involvement, but God called them to the center. God called them into places of influence, places of decision-making, Places of being able to share their kingdom values, their love for God, their connection with God to make a difference. Joseph, went, you know, he was, he was thrown into prison by his brothers. He was sold into slave trade by his brothers. 
ended up in prison, and yet God's hand was on him, favor was on him, and he rose to the top to be a key influencer at specific strategic times to make a difference in the history of Israel. Moses was abandoned, you know, floated down the river and rescued back and brought into Pharaoh's house. He grew up in Pharaoh's court, making a difference, having an influence there. Daniel, you know Daniel's story, same thing, sold into captivity in Babylon, taken aside, raised up by the the eunuchs there. And he began to ascend because scripture said he had an excellent spirit and the favor of God was on him. And he grew and, and he came into a place of stature and maturity where he ministered in seven different administrations, helping bring order, helping bring rule, helping bring insight about the who true God was to this Babylonian culture. We could go on. King Esau was a revivalist. There were, there's David and Esau and Hezekiah. Nehemiah, who was serving in, in, with the king and got a passion for his rebuilding the walls of the city, went in and asked for political favor and political help to reestablish the, the ruins of, of the temple, and God granted them that. They weren't just passive people. Esther, the same thing. Israel's history, it was hanging in the balance. There was threats against them of annihilation, and the word of the Lord came to her, and, and the, the decree was, you were born for a time such as this. And she rallied to be engaged and to be involved and, and help change the direction, the course of, of the children of Israel there. And so you and me, to take a passive view, when we look at Scripture, that's not the example that are before us. People that just backed up, threw up their hands and said, what can I do? Woe's me. It's all going circling the toilet, heading, heading south. No, no, there's people that were engaged. People said that our, our vote matters, our, our involvement matters, our, our being engaged and being informed and in connecting. It matters. Anybody with me this morning? So this is what Jesus said. This is what Jesus said. Our purpose in the culture, Matthew 5, 13. He said, you're the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can, it, can you make it salty again? It would be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. Then 5, 14, you're the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that can't be hidden. No one lights a lamp, then puts it under a basket. Instead, the lamp's placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Here we've said this and we preach it. He talks about being salt and light. But he goes on to say, the next dialogue, the next verses are still important. So being salt and light. And then he goes on to say this. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. When God gathered the children of Israel and he said, I want to be your God and you'll be my people, he laid out the Ten Commandments and from there they were expanded. And in those commands, he taught people how to love him. He said, this is, what, this is how you love me. This is, this is the structure, the, the guideposts I'm giving you how to love me and how to love one another. And he laid it out. And Jesus reiterates and said, that's not passing away. I'm still passionate about the purpose of those things. Verse 19, if you ignore the least commandment, teach others to do the same. You'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Read the bottom of the last line in yellow with me. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So some of the battle we're in is about just truth, about making stands and and stepping up and sharing about God's heart for people and the things that he put in place and the original intent he put in place that helps people grow. It helps keep communities stable, helps keep people safe, 
God's law was just not about oppression. God's law was about protection. God's laws were about freedom, about just, just keeping in us a secure place where we could prosper and grow. And that's his, his heart for us, for you and me. We need to communicate that. Anybody with me again this morning? We, that needs to be explained to people and, and declared to people. And see, if you're going to be least in the kingdom of heaven, then just shut up about it. But if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, begin to be an example. Begin to have an impact concerning God's will and God's rule and God's, God's way of doing things. And so in summary, what's Jesus saying? Salt preserves from decay and deterioration. So stay salty. Tell your neighbors, stay salty. So before refrigeration, you knew they rubbed salt into meat. They rubbed salt into things that would, would um, you know, decay. And that salt was to, to preserve it, to keep the bacteria from eating it up. You and me, we can look around, we can see there's things that's crept into our culture, this deteriorating things. I'm called to be salty. This was several months ago, maybe we shared that with you, but we were in morning prayer and we got these reports about bath salts that would be sold at some of the local head shops. And these young kids are getting hold of bath salts and it's messing them up. It's messing them up mentally. And so just in passion, we left morning prayer and we drove over to the head shop on Santa Rosa and went in there and confronted the guy behind the counter. Why are you selling this stuff to kids? It's messing up lives. Hey, dude, I'm just the manager. It's not my decision, you know? I said, well, it's ruining people's lives, and we're here to pray that this thing gets taken off the shelf or you get closed down. So we got in a circle, and we prayed in the middle of a store right there with just, just boldness that God would, God would do something in the store or do something with what they're selling in the store because we're called to be salt, amen? Tell your neighbor we're called to be salt. And then Jesus said... We're called to be light. And the truth is, we're not the light itself. I'm not the light. He's the light. I'm just called to reflect his light. And so that only works if I'm full of his light. That only works if I'm not bitter and mad at you because the way you're voting or what you're posting on Facebook and all that. No, no, that, that light works because I've first been filled and touched by him. I can only love because he first loved me. And I recognize that. And we're called to be light in this season. And not just to point fingers at darkness, but light dispels darkness. And you and me are called to do that in the kingdom, in the culture we're living in. Don't hide it. Tell your neighbor, don't hide it. And then the last takeaway from this passage, from what Jesus is speaking about, how do we make a difference? We got to know and understand God's law is sacred and eternal. Now, some of these statistics that are being read, the, 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 they're saying the more you know, liberal Christian front right now, the young people that they're interviewing say it's more about what you do than what you believe. So their Christianity is, is boiled down to more how you treat people, how you walk in love, but they're less and less concerned about the doctrine behind it. When Ezra had a revival, it was the reading of the word of God where people's hearts began to break because of God's word and his commands and the things he put in his word. And there's a balance in the doing and the loving and, and at the same time having the proper belief structure behind that, the truth behind what I'm doing. We need both. Say both. And so we got to understand that God's law is sacred to him and eternal. And it's how we love him and relate to him and to one another. So no matter what our cultures say, we got to live and teach and share God's word. It's what changes lives. It's what changed my heart, which changes uh, people's destiny, which changes how they see things. Scripture says, be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. And so God's word's important. It needs to stay in the equation. 
This is what Tom Minery said, why you can't stay silent. So the fact is, when hearts are changed by the gospel, sometimes those hearts begin to beat in new rhythms. These are the people who, renewed in Christ, begin to see with fresh eyes what is wrong, and because the gospel's taught them what is right. They're the ones who cannot ignore what is happening around them, the ones who stand up and say, somebody has to do something. And so this, this week, I went online, and, and I didn't know this, but I ran across this article about the history of the pro-life movement going back to the time of Christ. Through different kings and different kingdoms, it talks about the Renaissance period. This whole rebirth of art and music, it became a distraction, just like it would in every culture, to the point where people were neglecting babies, throwing them in the river, leaving them on the streets of France. Anybody ever heard of St. Vincent de Paul Society? Out of those kind of movements, the St. Vincent de Paul Society rose up hundreds of years ago by somebody that says, we need to make a difference in the culture that's shifting. And that idea of activism, the idea that people of God, they're the ones we're called to make a difference. It's not just politically, but it's with the needs and the things around us. That's what speaks so loud. And when we work on getting people's hearts shifted, their eyes open. They're, they're, they're past redeemed. When they, when they get saved and come to know Jesus and the heart of Jesus, that's when true transformation takes place in families and homes, but also in a community. So we need to be about some evangelism as well. Amen? Here, here's a challenge from Andrew Womack. Approximately 30% of Americans say they're born again. If each one of us in the next four years would lead just one other person to what? True faith. Over 60% of the population will be born again by the time we once again face a presidential election. If that happens, then there really would be change. So, so if we just worked on bringing people to know the Lord and then helping to educate disciples, this is what it means to be a follower. And as a follower, these are the things that are, that are in God's plan for original design. And these things aren't. And if we could do that, man, we could really see some change. Amen? We got to be about it. So let's... Get down to this part. Selection time. I hear it over and over again. Just vote the Bible. Pastor Mike, why don't you share about more about voting the Bible? Well, tell me that. What part? What, what part of the Bible do, do we speak about that we preach on? Because there's many topics in the Bible. And even in the different platforms and the different camps, there's groups that are passionate in each camp concerning certain things that really have biblical uh, a mandate behind them. Here's just a few things that are biblical issues. What I look for in a leader when we're voting for president, I, I look for a heart of righteousness, somebody that has a servant heart, that when you talk to them, you know that they're in it for the right reason. They're in it to help people. They're in it to help the community. They're not motivated by just their own personal gain and what it's going to do to their corporations, what it's going to do for their friends. You look for people, and it's hard maybe at the national level to look through all, all whatever's being fed us. But at the local level, I still remember when Ian Parkinson was running for sheriff. He was in front of Walmart. I stood out in front there. I talked to him for probably a half hour about why he was running for sheriff, the convictions that were in his heart about it. At that time, our Pismo Beach chief of police was running for sheriff too, and I thought he was a pretty good guy. So I wanted to know the difference between them. And when you heard what he was standing for and the things he was sharing and, and the things that, you know, what motivate him, he, he got my vote. And so when I see him standing for righteousness, they have a servant leadership heart. There's not a history that's tainted by corruption and greed. There, there's not that stuff, those, those, you know, that baggage in their closets that's obvious. Those are the ones that I tend towards. And believe me, in the last 
25, I've been saved almost 40 years, so 77, coming up on 40 years. In those 40 years since I voted, I voted for independents, Democrats, and Republicans in different elections based on the character and the quality of the person I saw, not so much what the political party that they were espousing to. Because just, you go after character, you go after heart. The other thing I look for is religious liberty. I don't know about you, but as a kingdom guy, kingdom of God guy, I look at the agendas and the platforms of the parties that are there, and I see the eroding of religious liberties. My ability, my freedom to preach on a Sunday morning the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. There's a couple laws going forward right now. One of them at our state level is saying this. Any college that receives public money for students, so if, you have, if you're getting tuition aid, tuition assistance from the state, that would apply. Any college that receives that kind of money, they cannot mandate moral codes in their, in their school. They can't mandate chapel attendance. They can't mandate that you have to take Bible classes. So students that are receiving money to go to Biola, Azusa Pacifica, uh, Cal Lutheran, what is it, Pacific Christian in Fresno, the, some of the major Christian colleges, they've been bringing students there, getting financial aid. This law says you can't make those students sign any of those codes. You don't, they don't have to follow the mandate of your university because they're receiving state money. Well, there's an uproar right now. Biola, some of them said that's not how we're going to play. We're going we're to fight this thing. We're going to stand against it. Another law that's moving through right now concerning religious liberty is that says that if a, a young person comes to a counselor and says, I'm struggling with my sexual identity, it's illegal for a counselor try, to try and persuade him one way or the other. And that was just for counselors. And now this recent ruling with just a few weeks ago came out that pastors can't do the same thing. It's the first time that the courts, the laws, have ever tried to infringe on what we can tell people and how we counsel them. So I'm a big religious freedom guy. And so when I look at candidates, I see where do they stand on religious liberties, religious freedoms, and, and what other agendas are pushing their positions and trying to impact how they view religious liberty. Here's another, another biblical issue. How do we deal with the poor and the oppressed and the disadvantaged? How do we deal with that? Both platforms, this is what I did this week. I uh, copied both platforms, the Republican platform 51 pages, 56 pages, the Republican platform, 51 pages, the Democratic platform, and this is where, the, the, in the beginning of this political season, they get their leaders together, they say, what are we gonna, what are, where are we going to stand on taxes? Where are we going to stand on college education and college tuition? What are we going to do about immigration? What's our policy? What's our energy policy? And so each party puts together their platform, and I spent several hours this week just just reading their platforms, looking at their platforms. You know, as, as a pastor, and according to 501c3 laws, they, they tell you, be careful about what you say to people, and da-da-da-da, because I know there's people on both sides here. All I'm saying is I encourage you to study what the party you represent stands for. I encourage you to read it, to look at it, see the positions they take, because it's difficult, both of them, They'll, they'll tell you about what, you know, how the, they're going to improve jobs in the next season, how they're going to cause job growth in the next season. 
Two different views, mostly, of America and how it should move forward. Two different platforms here, but it's important to be informed. So when I think about voting biblically, both of these platforms tell us that we need to help the poor and the disadvantaged. We need to help level the playing field. When you read the two, there's a different way of how they're introducing or saying they should do it. But as a Christian, it's important for, for you and me to be concerned about the poor. Acts 15, the new church is growing and starting. One of the commands, one of the mandates they gave, you know, they said, Jews, you got to welcome the Gentiles in now, and they're not under the law to do the same things we were doing, to follow all the details. They don't have to be circumcised to be uh, believers. They laid it all out, but the end, they said, remember the poor. And so for you and me, that's a biblical mandate. When somebody says, vote the Bible, I say, well, how about this issue? What do we do with the, the people, the immigrants? Different camps have different viewpoints. You know what? In, in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, God made a place for those, the immigrants that would come, for strangers and foreigners. His heart was for strangers and foreigners. As I've done missions work now in several countries of the world, that, that heart for God, for, the, for missions and for immigrants is strong and it's, it's important. This team that's in Mexico, one of the times we went to Mexico, we were outside Ducati, and there was a stretch maybe from the edge of those chairs, made you to this platform. That's the highway. This is the railroad tracks, and hundreds and hundreds of people had set up shacks and pallet homes and all that along this stretch because they'd come from turmoil, political turmoil, persecution in Central America, trying to head to America, and men went into the U.S., and wives and kids got stranded on the Mexico side. Now, part of us might, some of us in here, well, that's what they get, trying to migrate illegally, and that, 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 we might. But I tell you what, when you get there and you see the little kids, it's not a political thing. It's like meeting the needs. We're gospel people with, armed with the good news. We, we share the good news. We try and help out people that are going through tough stuff. It's the gospel mandate that overrides sometimes my political platform. Is anybody with me? You get it a little bit this morning? And so just to draw lines in the sand and say, this is my stance. Hey, there, there's people on the other side that have passion about some of these things. And you can't demonize them. And point your finger at it and say, you're not going to be my Facebook friends because you believe this way. There's people on the other side and other parties that are my friends that even change parties. And when we talk to them, it's because they have passion about things. My good friend, he, he, he left the Republican Party because he's passionate about foster care. And he's passionate about widows and orphans. And he said at the local level and the county, the state level, when I would meet with officials and try and get some help, they all kind of shunned me. They're all concerned about these other things in their budget, but I found people in the other camp that are for what I'm doing, and that's why I changed. And he's a lover of Jesus, and he's a lover of people, and he's a lover of the kingdom. I'm saying, so some of these things are not as maybe cut, you know, so black and white. You got real quiet over those things. So are you with me? Do you understand where I'm coming from? How about protecting the unborn? Is, should that be a priority for, for the, the church? Yeah. So when you read these platforms, they got different ideas concerning how that, how that should be. Morality, supporting laws that reinforce God's laws and reward good behavior. One of the things that is on the ballot coming up is legalization of marijuana for recreational use. There's all kinds of debate about the natural thing. Well, it'll raise more taxes, millions and millions, really, in Colorado and taxes. It might stop some of the drug trafficking. Yeah, it might do a little of that. 
They, they go through and all the reasons of that. But personally, I feel anytime we pass laws that encourage vices in people, we're opening gates. We're opening ways to mess up families and homes. We, we passed a law, I don't know, probably 20-some years ago. We're going to bring in this lottery, and it's going to save our schools. Then how come there's still bonds on every election to fix our schools? The money didn't go there, but I've, I've got the call concerning those things, the gambling and the bringing in more and more casinos. I've got the call of the, the, the mom that said, my husband's down there at the Shumash Casino again. He lost $10,000 recently, and we're about to lose our house because of the vice and the gambling. Well, you know, when you open the doors to those things, it can't help but affect your culture. Now, I get the medical marijuana part. Again, this was a couple years ago, a few years ago now. Young mom in our church came and said she's fighting migraines. The prescription medication they had her on just knocked her out so bad she couldn't even take care of her kids. And what was working for her is marijuana would take care of the headaches, and then she could function with the kids, and she said, what do I do? What do I do? I said, you got to do what works for your family. You got to do what works to help engage and, and take care of your kids. That needs to be a priority to you. But medical use is one thing, but I smoked a lot of it for recreational use. I'm telling you, it goes from bad to worse. It, it opens the door to things in your life that begin to unravel. So I feel strongly about passing laws that, that, that help support morality, that gives the message to the culture. These things are healthy. These things are profitable. These things are, you know, Paul, the, the apostle Paul wrote, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. He said, what's going to be profitable for you? Those are the things I believe we should support. Those are the candidates I go after trying to reinforce, reinforce good behavior and responsible uh, lawfulness. And then there's debt and fiscal responsibility. What's our national debt now? What? 12 trillion. What is it at? 20 trillion now. I said 12. I was 8 trillion off. Anyway, it's out of control. It's handcuffing our next generation. It's handcuffing our next generation. And so when you look at the agendas and you see what's promised, you say, well, how are we going to pay for that? I want to know before I vote, how is it going to be paid for? Two different views of how that happens. Then there's the environment. Some of us that have been around for a while, we, we make fun of this environmental stuff. We make fun of global uh, climate change. And there's, there's young people, though, that are super concerned about the environment. This is one of their passions. And as believers, they feel like when God said, rule over the earth, take care of it, be stewards over it, they take that as a biblical mandate. They take that as part of their faith. There's a movement towards that. Some of us have the mindset that, you know, hey, it's passing away. Jesus is going to come back soon, and he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth, and now we can just use it up and treat it any way we want to. I know that's an extreme position for some, but that's what you communicate. And so there's young people in their faith that are in our church. After first service, I had one of them come up to me and says, thank you for saying that about the environment. Thank you for saying that there is Christians that are concerned, and they're passionate about it. And when we blow them off and, and, and make fun of our carbon footprint and those kind of things, when we just blow that off, we're going to alienate a group that, that believe with passion that that's part of their commission, that's part of their call, that's part of something that's important to them. And I think, personally, if I was God and I made the earth and I left man on it, I'd want him to take care of it too. People come over to your house and thrash your house, do you want them over again? If we're thrashing God's creation... 
mean, I would say, get out of my creation. You can't go to Yosemite if you're not going to take care of it. You know, don't enjoy my big trees if you're going to trash my environment. I, I feel like God's got a care and a concern for the environment, that that should be part of our concern as well as believers. And I know there's balance in all that. Last but not least, Israel and the Middle East. I, you know, when I look at candidates, I look, where do they stand on Israel? Are they supporting of Israel? God told in, in Abrahamic covenant, if people bless you, I'm going to bless them. If you look out for Israel, if you're you concerned about Israel, pray for Israel, the, the blessing comes back on the nations that do because God's got a plan and a purpose there. So I ask myself, what, what's this person's stand on the nation of Israel in the Middle East? And uh, is there a balanced view of it, a balanced stand of it? It's important in the people we're choosing. There's more issues. There's racial reconciliation issues. Those are biblical things, how we're treating one another that are different than us. There's people in our church that are passionate about those issues. They might even be across another party line because they're passionate about those issues. It doesn't demonize them. It doesn't make them, you know, any different or better. There's core things that they believe they're called to that maybe one party's not addressing, and it's not helping meet what they feel they're called to fix. So we need to be understanding with our brothers and sisters about some of those things. Amen? Here, here's what came out economically. These are the top four most important economic issues right now for Americans. It's the lack of jobs. Both agendas, both platforms say how they're going to try and fix that. Uh, I encourage you to take a look at that. The budget deficit, rising cost of health care, and the increasing gap between the rich and the poor. 9% say they're concerned about Social Security. 9% say they're, cost, they're concerned about the rising cost of education. So those are the things that are impacting households and families. Those are the things why people are picking sides on one side or the other. Some of us are like two-issue people. We look at what's happening with the gay agenda and what's happening with abortion, and that's how we're making our decisions. And so uh, those things are huge to me. Religious liberties, those things are huge to me. But when I hear people from, you know, that have concerns about the other things, I have to give some honor to that. Those are the things they're, they're passionate about. I'm not going to go to war with you. I'm not going to fight with you. My, I'm a kingdom guy. I believe it's Jesus that can turn things around, change hearts. He's got the solutions to it. These other things are important, but I'm not going to go to war with you over them. You're still my brother. You're still my sister in the Lord. So some things to remember, I didn't put it on the list, but God's neither Democrat nor Republican. I did not put that on the list. But I put there are people in every political party that confess Christ and try to follow him. And, and I met them on both sides. There's others affirm a certain political party because there's something in the party platform they're passionate about. They're not your enemy. Maybe they're less informed about some, issue, some issues, but most often they're working for change too. And so the hostility you feel when you click through the channels and salute Carbajal's pointing at Justin Fareed and then Justin Fareed throws an ad back that takes a shot at salute, those things that, you know, that's all part of the political bantering, but you and me can get caught up in that. It can start stirring our heart, make our heart bitter, hateful, angry, all that stuff. It's not kingdom stuff. We need to be careful. Amen? So... As I'm reading through the platforms, and again, this is because I'm a pastor, this is my passion, this is my calling, this is what I'm going to do till Jesus comes back. When I, when I think about religious liberties in these two platforms, the Democratic Party, out of 51 pages, 
had one paragraph concerning their stand on religious freedom. It's called Respecting Faith and Service. Democrats know that our nation, our communities, and our lives are made vastly stronger and richer by faith in many forms in the countless acts of justice and mercy and tolerance it inspires. We believe in lifting up and valuing the good work of people of faith and religious organizations and finding ways to support that, that work where possible. So that, out of 51 pages, that's all they put in their, their platform about religious freedom. When you go to the Republican platform, the mandate of the Republican platform, and I, and I highlighted a bunch of it, and for sake of time, I'm not going to read it, but it's several pages. It goes to the First Amendment and defending the, the First Amendment. It says, the Bill of Rights lists religious liberty with its rights of conscience as the first freedom to be protected. Religious freedom in the Bill of Rights protects the right of the people to practice their faith in everyday lives. As George Washington taught, religion and morality are indispensable supports to a free society. Similarly, Thomas Jefferson declared that no provision in our Constitution ought to be uh, clearer or dearer to man than that which protects the right of conscience against the enterprises of the civil authority. They go on to mandate and list how they're going to protect that, the freedoms for how you exercise in your business and do, do business and those different freedoms. And so I just encourage you, whatever platform you are, when you're listening to the candidates, consider where they are in religious freedom. Consider what their stand is on our ability to preach the gospel and to share the good news of Jesus Christ because I believe that's what preserves a society and changes hearts. Not just a political agenda or the changing of an outward law, but it's God's law, God's word, God's love comes and changes hearts, which changes a community. Another thing to remember, the next president's gonna select between two and four justices who will reign over the cultural issues of our nation for the next 30 years. The average Supreme Court judge serves 26 years. In the next 30 years, what happens in this election is going to have an incredible impact on my children and my grandchildren. And the impact will be most likely felt more because of what happens in the Supreme Court than anything else that happens in the government. That's from Pastor David Jeremiah. So as we're going uh, to the courts, you say, the presidents have put up the candidates, but the Congress is who really... Uh, puts in place or approves the candidate for the Supreme Court. Seek out and find out where your candidates stand on what kind of Supreme Court justices they would put forward or because it's got a major, major influence in the culture we live in. Read this with me. When the godly are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked are in power, they groan. Anybody felt that groan before? <laughs> Let's read the last one. Here's a promise. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. So we have a heritage in our nation of wanting godly people in place. And again, the one side of the ditch is that we say, well, you know, I'm looking, my whole hope is in the government. My whole hope is in leaders. That's what I'm going to end with. This is in Samuel, 1 Samuel. Samuel was a prophet and a priest, and God wanted to be king. And God set it up that he would lead and he would deal directly with his prophets and prophetesses. And they would give impact and influence. And then there was a whole series of judges that God used. But the people wanted a king. And they came to Samuel and said, we want a king like everybody else. And finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you're now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. And 
Samuel is displeased with the request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they're not rejecting, they're, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Verse 8, ever since I brought them from Egypt, they've continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they're giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. Then verse 18, and when that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you're demanding, but then the Lord will not help you. In other words, he said, you, you want other kings, you want other leaders to lead their way, to do it by public opinion, to do it by just uh, ways of reason and not with my heart and not under the influence of my word and my spirit. Okay, you can have your kings, but when things crash, essentially don't come complaining to me. And, 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 I, and I sense that sometimes when we're looking so much for politics to serve our problems when it's a relationship with the Lord that makes a difference. It's a relationship with God that changes people. This is our mandate. First of all, then I urge, it's interesting. First of all, this is what Paul writes to Timothy. First of all, I urge that petitions, specific prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be offered on behalf of all people for kings and all who are in positions of high authority so that you what, may live a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This kind of praying is good and acceptable and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who wishes all people to be saved and come to the knowledge and the recognition of the truth.